together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you freely and openly today. We thank you for this day. Father, we thank you for the rain because the, the flowers and the grass need the rain. It comes from you. So although it inconveniences us, it is part of your blessing, and we thank you for it. But we thank you, Lord, that although it's raining on the outside, the sun is shining on the inside here. And Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that that sun become brighter and brighter and brighter. Your word says that the entrance of your word brings light. It lights our path. It makes you more real to us. And Father, as we open this word together today, we pray that by the Spirit of God that you would open the inner eyes, the eyes of our inner understanding, that we might truly see the hope to which you've called us. We might truly see and be impacted by the good news, the gospel of what you've done for us in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we just take authority over anything that would distract today, that your word may enter on our hearts as the pure seed of the word of God and begin to grow as it's watered and produce a harvest 30, 60, and even a hundredfold. And we thank you for that in advance. In Jesus' name, amen. amen and amen. Well, we've been talking about for a while now, why are we here? Why is the church here? Why are you here? Why are we on this earth? What's the purpose of our life? What's the purpose of being here? Because once we become children of God, if God really loves us, the only place we can ever get in trouble is here. Why doesn't he just take us home to be with him? And the reason is, of course, God has something for us to do and to do together. And so we've been looking at what that is, and we went and looked at what Jesus said to his disciples, or began to look at what Jesus said to his disciples in the very beginning, the very first, excuse me, the end of his earthly ministry with them, right before he was ascended into heaven. And the first place we've looked so far is in Mark chapter 16, where Jesus says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. And so that is why we're here. We're here to go, that means do something. Into, that means out among the society, not just sitting here in church, not just sitting in our own, you know, Bible studies and our own connect groups. It means get involved where you can touch people and God can use you to touch people. All the world, that means God has no area that he's closed to. There's no people that we can look at and say, well, they're beyond God's redemption. God doesn't like them. They're so far off track. God wants the gospel, the good news, to go into all the world. And the world, the Greek word there means systems of the world, not just physical places, but it means the philosophies, the ideas, the marketplace of the world. Wherever God has placed you, he has placed you there because there's a world there that he wants to reach. And we're to preach. That doesn't just mean stand behind a pulpit or stand on a, on a street corner and with a megaphone and say, the, you know, the, the end is coming, repent. It means to live our life. It means that, but it means to live our life before people in such a way that they begin to hear what we have to say. You have to, you have to before people are going to listen to you, you have to earn the right to speak into their lives. Even though this is the truth, they won't listen to you until they know that you care enough about them to, to the, the reason why you're speaking to them is because you care about them. And I think that's why a lot of evangelism programs have not worked in the past because our motive hasn't been that we care about the people. The motive is we care, we're trying to get rid of the guilt that we feel and we got, you know, how many people did you get saved today? That's not focused on them. That's focused on me and how good a job am I doing. And so we're going back and looking at then the, the last thing that, that Jesus says in this commission, which is the really the, the most important part, is to preach the good news. And so we've been talking about what's so good about this news. And we, and we, we started with the, the idea that, that if anybody 
if we have, uh, go to a good restaurant or see a good movie or we have some good experience, we're not shy about telling people about it. Why? Because that goodness impacted us in such a way we don't want to be quiet about it. And we saw in the Gospels that there were time, many times when Jesus did something good for somebody and, and, they, and told them to not tell anybody and they couldn't help it. They just went out and told people. Why? Because it was so good they couldn't keep quiet about it. And then the question we asked ourselves is, well, if the good news is so good to us, this good news, then why don't we have trouble keeping it to ourselves? Why are we not anxious to tell people and, and looking forward to telling people? And maybe it's because we've either lost touch with how good this has been to us, or maybe we've never really been in touch with how good God has been to us with this good news. So that's what we've been going back and, and looking at. And so to do that, we went, and we're going to read now. Open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 1. And we're starting something that we're trying to get the scriptures up on the screens too. So we're going to go to Romans chapter 1, 16 and 17. So if you've got that, you can put it up there. In the meantime, I'll start reading. Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So go, say, go back to 16. Stay in 16. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I think the reason some of us don't share it is we're ashamed of it. So if we're ashamed of it, that means we don't really understand what it is. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And Paul talks in several places about different gospels. He says in, I think it's Corinthians, uh, he says, if, if you hear another, Galatians, if you hear another gospel, it's accursed. There's only one gospel, and it's the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I come to you with nothing else than the, than the news of the cross and what Christ has done for the cross. Then we saw, for the gospel is the power of God to salvation. We asked ourselves the question, is that power really at work in my life? Salvation doesn't just mean not going to hell and going to heaven. It means complete freedom and delivery from any of the effects of sin. That includes sickness and disease. That includes generational curses, as they're so-called. That includes depression. That includes anything that has as its root sin. The gospel is the power of God to deliver us from that. And so we look at our lives and say, am I bound up by things? Am I bound up by fear? Am I bound up by depression? Am I hooked in drugs or, or alcohol or, 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 or tobacco? Am I hooked with something that's controlling my life? Then the gospel hasn't released its power in my life yet, but it's available to us. It's the power of God to everyone. 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 Are you an everyone? All right, then it applies to you. Oh, here's the con who believes. With almost everything with God, he provides it, but we only enjoy it to this extent that we believe it's true for us. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And I've often heard it misquoted. Well, the truth shall set you free. That's true, but it's only the truth that you know. It's only the gospel you believe that has power in it. So the, that's why we need to look at it. What is the gospel to me? What is it to me? Is if it's just getting into heaven, then that has power for getting into heaven, but it doesn't have power to release me here. When the angel released Peter from prison, he says, now go out and preach the whole council, the entire council 
of the Word of God. So there's a wholeness, a completeness to the Word of God that isn't always preached. We find aspects of it that we like or aspects of it that our theology thinks is the truth and often people exclude other aspects of it. But that word salvation is a very broad word. It means deliverance from everything that holds you back, everything that's a consequence of sin. So that's why we went back last week and we looked in the Garden of Eden and we saw what the Garden of Eden was like. It didn't have sickness in it. It didn't have depression in it. It didn't have bondage to drugs. It didn't have drugs in there. It didn't have any of that, thing, any of that bondage in there. Why? Because it was God's perfect creation. But the moment that they took their eyes off of God and put their eyes on themselves, fear came in. Shame came in. Because God came and found them and says, Where are you, Adam? He says, I hid. So hiding from God. Because I was ashamed and I was afraid. So the very first fruit of that sin was fear, shame, and guilt. And salvation includes a deliverance from that and all the other things that grow out of that. It's the power of God to everyone who believes for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now go to verse 17. And this is why. This is what we began to look at this last week. For in it, in what? In the gospel... The righteousness of God is revealed. So the, re- the power of the gospel is it reveals something about God. The power of the gospel, and we talked about the word revealed. The word revealed is to make something visible to you that already existed, but you didn't see it. And because you didn't see it, it didn't affect you. But the moment you see it, you now know that it's real to you. So that explains to us, if the righteousness of God hasn't been revealed to me, it has no power in my life. It has no power to work for me. For in the, in the gospel that we believe, the righteousness of God is revealed to us. And it's revealed, we'll talk about this down the road, from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. I just leave that up there for a moment. I want to make some statements that God has given to me. What we went back and looked at last week was to understand what the righteousness of God is. There's two sides to this. There's the righteousness of God that talks about who God is, what God's nature is, and what God requires. And then there's the righteousness of God, the other side of it, is what he's given to us, which is the same thing, but he's given it to us. And we'll get there later, so don't get confused about that right now. But a lot of people skip over this first part. And they think that the righteousness of God means God's made us righteous. He's justified us in Christ. And that's all true. But that doesn't have the impact on us and the power on us unless we've first of all seen the other side of it. And that's why the Old Testament in part is in here. You ever wonder why there's an Old Testament? If there's a New Testament, I don't need the Old Testament. This used to be my attitude when I was first saved. Why do I need the Old Testament when I've got the gospel in the New Testament? until I began to read through the Old Testament. The Old Testament used to scare me. Am I the only one? You know, it's just like, I didn't like the God that I saw in the Old Testament because he seemed like he was always angry. Let's wipe out this nation and wipe out that nation and get rid of this people. And oh my goodness, they had a wrong thought. Let's open the earth and swallow them right up. You know, I don't know that I want to know that God so well. I like the God of love and mercy and grace. The problem is there aren't two gods. There's only one God. And without understanding this background, without understanding what the righteousness of God is, we cannot understand the full power of grace. 
Because grace is what you were saved from. But if you don't understand what you were saved from, you can't truly appreciate what you were saved into. Now, there's some people in here, you know what you were saved from. I mean, you know there was smoke on your coattails when you got into the kingdom of God. You know it was the grace of God that rescued you out of hell. You know where you were headed. You know you deserved it. And you know what God's done for you. But, but it, there's, there's a tendency sometimes to forget that and lose touch with it. But then there are many people, which was my testimony, I was a, I was a good sinner. I didn't just mean that I sinned well. I mean, I was a good person that sinned. Because I looked at myself and compared myself to you. I mean, to, to others. And I, isn't that what we do? Well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so, so I must be pretty good. And, and doesn't Jesus compare, talk about the publican and the Pharisee? You know, and the Pharisee's attitude, he wouldn't say it out loud. His attitude was, well, I'm, I, I'm pretty good because I'm not like that sinner. And Jesus said, that sinner's going to get to heaven because he knows he's a sinner. You won't because you think you're righteous in yourself. And we're talking about the righteousness. It's not your righteousness. It's not my righteousness compared to your righteousness. The beginning is it's the righteousness of God. So we went back to the beginning last week, and we saw that in the beginning, God created this wonderful creation, and then his crowning creation was man himself. And that's the only creation God made where he breathed his own life into it. Everything else he just spoke into existence. But man he formed He formed and then he breathed his life from his own lungs into man's lungs and he became a living soul, it literally means, a living being. And and, and at the end of chapter 2, this man and then the woman who came out of him were just so lost in who God is, in his glory, his wonderful, in his righteousness, in his goodness, in his holiness. But they could observe that because they were just as righteous, just as good, and just as holy Because he made them in his image. They were just like God. When they saw him, they saw themselves in him because they were just like him. And I'm going to skip ahead briefly because that's what John means in 1 John when he says, and when we see him, this is 1 John 4, we're going to know that we're like him. Because as he is, so are we in this world. When Jesus comes back, the great revelation is we're already like him on the inside because we've been given his righteousness but that's the end of the story so we're still talking the beginning of the story and of course the end of that chapter 2 says and they were both naked and they were not ashamed and what that tells us isn't so much about what clothing they were wearing they were not conscious of themselves and this is key they were not aware of themselves they were totally aware of God and who they were lost in who God is that sounds strange to us it sounds threatening to us because we've never experienced it we don't really know what he's like he's so wonderful he's so holy he's so glorious that whenever he's an angel has appeared to man they can't stand in their presence that's an angel that's not God himself Daniel sees an angel, falls on the ground as a dead man, and the angel has to get him up. Ezekiel falls on the ground. Others. And it's happened even in this day and age. The presence of God. If the presence of God, the kabod, the weight of God, the glory of God began to roll in here, nobody could stand. The 
presence of God is so heavy, so strong, so wonderful. The fragrance of God, so wonderful. And they were lost in who he is. And they weren't less. They were more. Now, this is important to get. That's why we're spending time on it. Because this is where God wants us now. They were in perfect union. They were one with God. Not just thinking the same thoughts. They were absorbed in who he is. It's like a... a you ever see... A, and hopefully, if you're married, you've been there at some point. Young couple just falling in love. I remember when we were dating because we were eight, almost 800 miles apart. And boy, I couldn't wait to get to see her. And I just wanted to see, look at her when I saw her. I still do. <laughs> but I was... Because but, 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 I can do it when I want to now... I mean, she walks into, I don't want to embarrass her, but, it, but she walks into the office right now, my heart goes a little faster when I turn around and see it's her. 48 years later, but it ought to be that way. It ought to be that way. It ought to be that way. But when we first fell in love, we just wanted to stare at each other, just lost in each other. You ever been out at a restaurant and you see this couple, you can tell that they're just in love and they're just... just And the waiter comes along and they put the food down. It's like, <laughs> so lost in each other. They're, listen, they're not conscious of themselves. That's got to be just a hint of what, because it's God. And all his wonderfulness and righteousness and glory and beauty. I mean, you think, we think we know what beauty is. God's heaven uses pure gold as a paving material. We read some of the descriptions of Lucifer last week and how gorgeous he was. The problem, and here's the problem. Lucifer took his eyes off of God and began to look at this beauty. And the moment he took his eyes off of God, he was open to deception. And the deception was... This is my beauty. That I, this is who I really am. And then he started getting prideful. And we saw last week that once he did this, was evicted out of heaven, became Satan, and took a third of the angels with him. His goal now is to, is to take this beautiful creation and relationship and throw it off kilter. Out of, out of balance. That's called the fall. We saw in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul refers to this as reconciliation, that God was in Christ reconciling the world back to himself, restoring the world, whoever would believe, back into this kind of relationship with him, which is why Jesus talks in John in chapter 14, 15, and 16 about being one with him. Ever read that and wonder, what's that all about? It's getting back to this place of perfect union with God where we're lost in who God is and God's able to be lost in who we are. That's why he's come to live on the inside of you so he can be one with you. That's not some symbolic thing. Well, we're getting ahead of ourselves still. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Now keep that up there. I want to read some statements that I felt the Lord give me about this. The root of sin is not the deeds or actions of sin, the root of it, but it's the heart that is self-centered and self-reliant. 
the root of sin. The fruit of it is the, de is the deeds we do. The fruit of it is the lying, the cheating, the stealing, the killing. But the root of that fruit is a heart that is self-centered. Self-centered means I look at everything in terms of me. In the garden, they looked at everything in terms of God. And Satan's temptation was to take their eyes off of him and begin to look at themselves. Because he said, God's lied to you because he's told you that if you eat of that fruit tree of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, He's keeping something from you because if you eat of that tree, you'll be like him and he doesn't want you to be like him. So go take it, listen carefully, go take it into your own hands, literally, and eat it, take it for yourself, something God didn't give you. And what he was really after wasn't to eat the fruit. It doesn't say it's an apple, by the way. He wasn't really after them eat the fruit. What he wanted them to do is to take their lives their decisions into their own hands. And the moment they did that, the Bible calls that rebellion because they're rebelling against God as their creator, not as their boss, as the one who made them, and they're establishing in their own heart themselves as their own creator, and therefore their own God. And we saw last week that the lie of Satan, because Satan is a deceiver, he never gives you what he tells you he's giving you. He's like a con artist or a pickpocket that says do this, but what he's really after is something else. What he was really after is to get them out of God's kingdom and into his kingdom because you can never, I don't care how smart you are, how rich you are, I don't care what you've made yourself to be, you are never going to be your own God because there are only two that are in existence that the Bible tells about. There's the God of all creation and there's the false God that's the God of this world and you're under one of them. You're not self, you're not independent. No human being is independent. We either know we're dependent on God or we're deceived and we're dependent on Satan. But you're one or the other. Ingrained, therefore, in our DNA is this attitude of do it ourselves. I've got to do it ourselves we get in trouble, we're going to get ourselves out or at least contribute to it. It is so ingrained in our flesh. And what's happening to me is the more I meditate on God's grace, the more I meditate on how good God is, the more it's bringing light out as I see little subtle attitudes I have. I'm just going to share one because in the hope that it might shine light on some of yours. I mean, Sunday, Sunday is a work day for me. I'm, I love this. This is my passion, but this is work. So before so I get up, especially early on Sunday morning, and I go over the scriptures and over the notes, and sometimes I've had God change it, many times he has. And then I go down into my place in the basement where I pray, which is our furnace room, and I just pray. But I take a clock down there because I want to make sure that I am come out in time so that I can get ready. And, and, and you don't sit in here and say, I wonder where Pastor John is, and I'm so lost in prayer. You know? It would be wonderful. But, so, but what I've had that, even this morning, the thought is what well, you're going to preach today you need to spend at least so many minutes in prayer. Now listen to the very subtlety of that. In other words, whether or not I'm, I'm going to do a good job 
depends on how long I prayed this morning. Did you catch that? The focus and the trust isn't on the one I'm praying to or the ones I'm praying. It's on what am I doing and what does that mean about me? That is so hard to get out of my thinking because it's ingrained. Once this fall happened, self becomes innerly focused and we become, we've been growing up not just in our own family, but this world is, 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 is saturated with this attitude and all our media, everything in this world reinforces that except this. The harder, and this is the key, the harder we try to get free of it, the, listen carefully, the harder we try to get free of this self-centeredness, the deeper it gets rooted in us. Some of you may remember car radios used to have push buttons where you could preset. Now it's all electronic where you could preset it. And the thing about a push button is that if you push the far left one, whatever else was pushed comes out. So the way flesh works is if you finally got your anger under control by your efforts, another one just popped out (laughs) called pride. And you can't push them all in. Because whatever you push in, another one comes back out again. Listen carefully. The harder you try to be unselfish, the harder you try to get yourself unselfish, the more selfish you become. Because we don't understand that the root of the problem is I'm doing it myself by my own efforts, by my own study. Now, studying's good. Obviously, prayer's good. But my motive for prayer can't be because so that I'm preparing myself to do a good job. My motive for prayer is I'm lost in my Heavenly Father. I'm just loving Him. And I'm convinced this is why we don't see more results in prayer. Because we're never thinking who we're praying to. We're just saying prayers because I think if I pray hard enough, long enough, that's going to... It's like, the, it's like the eternal vending machine. If I get enough quarters in, it didn't come out. Oh, you know what? It's now a dollar and a quarter. I've got to put another quarter in, and now it comes out. That's religion. And that's what almost all of Paul's writing is aimed at getting at. The next statement God gave me, I, was gonna, I didn't have time to put these up this morning. So the harder we try to get free of this self-centeredness and self-reliance. The deeper it gets rooted in us. Why? Because it's our efforts we're relying on. Therefore, and this is so important, we cannot, we cannot deliver ourselves from selfishness. We cannot deliver ourselves from self-centeredness. Something greater than ourselves has to come into our lives from the outside to set us free. It's like this. It won't take you too much effort to remember back a number of months ago when everything around us was white up to here and we had it up to here. Some of you may have had the experience of getting, oh, I know it was. We were going down a narrow street in Providence. And by that time, the the snow was so heavy, so much snow, the road was one lane narrow or wide. 
And I'm going down this road, and a lady, dear sweet lady, and I'm in a hurry somewhere, pulls out in front of me and gets stuck sideways. And her answer for doing that is to floor it. And the more she accelerates, the faster the wheels spin, and you know what happens, the more it got stuck in the snow. And that's what our selfishness and self-righteousness might. The harder we try to get out, the deeper we get in. The only way she got out is several men had to come from outside the car and take hold of it and do for her what she couldn't do to get her moving. And then when she turned around and went out, she had a Florida license plate on and I understood why she got stuck in the snow. <laughs> she didn't know what it was like. And that's just a small example of what we do. So it's going to take something. Oh, the other thing is this self-centeredness is what keeps us, kept us in Satan's kingdom. He doesn't mind you getting reformed. He doesn't mind you getting free of things as long as you did it. In fact, he loves you thinking you're getting yourself somewhere. And about the time you think you're getting yourself somewhere, he pulls on the rope. And you fall and find out you really were nowhere. Because all he cares about is you keep thinking about you. That's all he cares about. Because as long as you keep thinking about you, you don't have any eyes on God. And you don't give God an entrance to work in your life. So the hold, this is very important, the hold that Satan has on man is the self-centeredness, is the self-righteousness, is, is self. That's the hold. It's not what we do wrong. That comes out of this. Only if our heart is changed from self-consciousness back to God-centeredness as at the beginning can we be free. Only as our heart is changed, and we can't change it, from being self-centered to God-centered as it was in the beginning, can we be delivered from this. So I was reading something else this week. An example came to me out of the Gospels where, and we've talked about this before, where Jesus has just fed the 5,000. He goes up onto the mountain to pray, sends his disciples out, and a storm comes. And he decides to go to the other side, and so he just starts walking on the water in the middle of a storm. And they see him, and they panic because they think it's a ghost because they're not used to seeing men walk on the water out there. And when Jesus said, don't be afraid, it is I, in Matthew's gospel, Peter steps out, and, or Peter speaks out and says, Lord, if it's you, bid me to come. And Jesus said to Peter, come. Peter steps out of the boat in this terrible storm, so much that they're afraid they're going to sink. And he walks on the water towards Jesus. I'm convinced, and I've shared this with you before, that Jesus, Peter walked on the word come. And as long as he, listen carefully, as long as his eyes were on Jesus, he walked on water in a storm. But remember what happened? He began to notice the wind and the waves. And the moment he took his eyes off of Jesus, he became conscious of himself that he couldn't do that. 
I've known of men that are weightlifters and, and, you know, and they're working their way up from one level to another level, got in there one day, did their exercise routine, and when they finished, they found out that they lifted 25 pounds more than they'd ever lifted before. They could do something they didn't need before because they weren't thinking of the weight. They were just doing their exercises. The next time they come back and put that extra weight on it, they couldn't do it. Why? Because now they were thinking of what they can do or can't do. Let's go over to Romans chapter 1. Oh, we're in Romans chapter 1, excuse me. Let's go down to verse 18, if they have it up there. We're going to read down through some verses here. If they don't have it, that's all right, I'll start reading. Okay. Now, notice the first word, for. That connects back with the verse we just read. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. For or because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. I, this, I don't like this part. Because now we're talking about the wrath of God. But we need to look at that. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. We're talking about what is the righteousness of God. We're used to hearing that the righteousness of God was given to us in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. But you cannot evaluate, you cannot appreciate the good news of the free gift of righteousness you've been given unless you understand what the righteousness of God requires. For what's revealed about the righteousness of God, first of all, is God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So what that's saying is that God's righteous, righteous, righteous judgment is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And what do they do? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Go to the next verse. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. And what this is going to go on and say is, you know, I've heard people say, well, if, if, if you have to receive Christ in order to get into heaven, what, how is that fair to people that have never had the chance to hear the gospel? And there's two answers to that that I know of. There may be more. First of all, that's why we've got a responsibility to go tell them. Because if they've never heard... But then why would it be fair, if it's my fault, they don't hear, why would it be fair for God to not allow them into heaven and for them to go to hell? Well, first of all, for me to start analyzing God's fairness is a dangerous thing. Because that means I have some good independent base of what fairness is apart from God, and I'm going to compare God to what I think is fair. And I've got to tell you, I don't want to do that. Because I don't want God starting to look at me in terms of what's fair. So I don't want to get into this fairness match with God. I don't think you're fair and then have him look it back at me and tell me where I haven't been fair. But beyond that, Billy Graham gave the greatest answer I've ever heard. He was on Larry King or something like that, and Larry King said, Well, are you saying, and first of all, it's not what Larry King's saying anyway, are you saying 
that if somebody dies and they've never heard or had the opportunity to receive Jesus, they're going to go to hell. And, Larry, and Billy Graham just sat back with that wonderful wisdom of age and just God's grace in his life and says, Larry, all I know is this. When each one of us stands in front of him and we get his judgment, we're all going to know it was right. <laughs> End of discussion. But here's what God's saying. God designed creation in such a way that it's possible for everyone to know there's a God. I'm living proof of that. We weren't saved until after our second child was born, our daughter was born. And I still remember standing in, it was the, 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 our first son, I was not allowed to go into the, into the delivery room. But with our daughter, I was allowed to go in. I couldn't go through the labor with her, but I could go to the delivery room. I could go into the delivery room with her. Actually, it was all in one room. And I'll never forget, when she, when she was born, when she came out, the words out of my mouth, all I could think of is, two of us came into this room, and three of us are going to leave. A bottle of my educated mind and the words out of my mouth I wasn't saved is there has to be a God there has to be a God only a God could do this create life and all around you I've known of uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards was saved great revivalist was saved by looking at a tree in springtime and he noticed that this tree was beginning to bud and that budding of that tree that he'd seen only months, a few weeks earlier was all dried up and frozen and now new life was coming out of it. He said, there has to be a God. There has to be some newness, some birth. And that's when he began to understand. And so this verse is telling us, God, because what God made known of God was manifest to them for God has shown it to them. Go to the next verse. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen. How, are they, how can invisible things be clearly seen? Well, can you tell when the wind is here? I could tell this morning it was, the wind was blowing. I can't see the wind, but I could sure tell the results of it. That's what Jesus uses to teach Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Although we can't see his attributes, we can see the fruit of his attributes, the result of his attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things which are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Go to the next verse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were they thankful, but they became futile in their thoughts. Notice they did that to themselves. The world's done that to themselves. They knew there's a God, but they chose to not acknowledge that there was a God. And when they chose to deny that there's a God, they entered into a deception. They became futile in their thoughts. We're not going to go there, but if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, God, Paul talks about this. God chose the foolish things to confine the wise. The Greeks seek after wisdom and knowledge. They evaluated things just like our society does today, by how educated you are, how smart you are, how clever your ideas are. And God calls those ideas foolishness. Because it's by the, by the foolishness of man, in God's eyes it's foolishness. The foolishness of man never reveals who God is. They became futile in their own thoughts, and their fu foolish hearts were darkened. Remember, dark and light. They were standing, Adam and Eve were in the light of God, and they fell into darkness. 
Darkness means they can't see spiritually. They can't see and understand things spiritually because it's spiritually darkened to them. Go to the next verse. Professing to become wise, they became fools. Granting degrees on their wisdom to one another. I mean, I was a philosophy major in college, and I'm not diminishing that. It was, I, I learned some very valuable things. But one of the most valuable things I learned is, apart from God, all those philosophers didn't know anything. Amen. They knew within the system here could understand things, but the man by his brain cannot think outside of this world. Professing to be wise, they actually became fools. Go to the next verse and exchange or change the glory for the incorruptible God into an image made like a corruptible man. Birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. Go to the next verse. Go back again. So when, what, when they took their eyes off of God, they, man knows inherently there's a creator out there somewhere. Which is why almost every society has come up with a God of some kind. There has to be a God. This has to have come from somewhere bigger than ourselves. That's what this is talking about. But what they choose to do is to deny that it's come from a God, a creator, and instead we must have done this. And when we do that, we change the glory of God, of an incorruptible God, and have made idols for ourselves. Images like corruptible man, and then animals. This is why God hates idolatry. Because what idolatry is saying, this thing I've made is my creator. This thing I've made is the one that governs my life. This thing I've made, I've submitted to my life. But I made it. A year ago when we were studying worship, we saw that, 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 that God told them in the Old Testament, told Moses, that when you make an altar... It's either got to be on dirt, on the ground, or you can make an altar out of stone, but it can't be stone that's been cut at all. We found out why. Because God made the dirt. So you can worship Him with things He made. God made the rocks. So you can use a rock as a platform for worshiping Him. But the moment man cuts it or fashions it, man has added to God's creation some of his own input. And God says, at that point, you profane it for worshiping me. Because you've added to me your input. And that profanes it, which means makes it unholy. So what this is saying, we're talking about the righteousness of God, God's own holiness. And he said, the anger, the wrath of God is, 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 comes against unrighteousness. Why? Because what it's done is it's taken this creation... And we've made it our God. Go on to the next one. Therefore God also gave them over to uncleanness, to lust of their heart, to dishonor body, their bodies among themselves. I'm going to have to skip ahead a little bit. Basically what it's going to say here is God let them, let them loose to do what they wanted to do to themselves. And we're, we're living with the fruit of that today. I'll go to the next verse. And this is what I wanted to get to. Who exchanged the truth of God for a lie 
and worship and serve the creature, the creation worshiped and served as a God, the creation rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Remember in the garden, they knew who God was. In the garden, he was the source of everything. He was the creator and they were the creation. But that didn't mean they were less. That didn't mean that they were subservient. That meant they were lost in his goodness, his love, his graciousness, his wonderful blessing. God's heart above everything else is to bless. God doesn't have to do anything. He didn't have to create us. There was no contract or obligation to create us. When he created man, he didn't have to bless him. He didn't have to create a garden of Eden. He did it because he wanted to. Ephesians start out, starts out with this wonderful, powerful refrain. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That I understand. Who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God's taken everything he has and said, I want to bless you with it. The very name Eden means place of delight and blessing. And God commanded them to enjoy it all. There was just one thing they couldn't do. That's all one thing. God wants to bless us. You so much prosper you, heal you. He wants to do so much for us. And we limit. Psalm 107 says, Israel limited Some translations say pained the Holy One of Israel. How did they limit him? Psalm 81 says, God at one point down, and and I want to blow out the radio people and everybody, but there's a cry. Oh! That Israel would have listened to me. Talking about out in the wilderness where all they ate was the manna and the quail every day. Oh, that Israel would have listened to me. I would have said, open wide your mouth and I would fill it. But they wouldn't listen to me. I wanted to bless them. I wanted to feed them with the finest of wheat and the finest of honey. God was taking them to a land that flowed with all the goodness of his creation to enjoy. God wants to bless. He created man to love and to bless And what we've done instead is we formed our own God, us, to worship and serve the things we create and the things we make and the things we can do, even our own salvation. To worship it. Exchange the truth of God for a lie. If it's not based on who God is, it's not truth. And the the danger of a lie is you can come to believe it and think it's truth, and be convinced it's truth, and be passionate about it, you can be wrong and sincere. And you've got to understand the difference, because there are many people out there that have a different belief, and they're very sincere, and they're passionate about it, and we say, well, you know, that's their belief. But the only way you know what the truth is, is by measuring it against God's truth that he's given to us. And they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. And here's how they did it. They worshipped and served the creator, creation, or creator, the creature, rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And that's what happened in the garden. 
That's what the temptation was all about. The temptation was to take their eyes off of the Creator and begin to look at and worship. See, we think of worship as singing songs. It's to lift up to a place of honor in your heart. It's to lift up to a place of position in your heart. It's to lift up in your own eyes and in your own thinking a place, the top place of, of this is what I owe to. This is what I'm, I'm responsible to. This is what governs my life. And, and we, our whole society is governed by creation. And it's upside down. So that little tiny one-eyed newts have more of a right today in our society than an unborn human baby. We have laws protecting the creation that God did not breathe his life into. And laws protecting the destruction of his creation that is made in his image. It's turned upside down. What the Bible talks about, and most of us were raised of an older generation, and what's good and what's right is now wrong. It's all upside down. It's what the prophet said, the truth, the truth has fallen in the street. It's just run over. And the problem is once you get outside of the truth, you get into a lie, there's no limit of what it'll go, where it'll go. And there are examples in the Old Testament, Sodom and Gomorrah, and there are other places even on the earth today where there's just no limits and anything goes. And we're headed that way. Our society is headed that way. Don't be afraid. Don't bemoan. Because notice it talked about before about the light. And this is why Jesus said to the church, you are the light of the world. And a light shines more brightly in darkness than it does at dusk. So the light of the love of God, the grace of God, the truth of God, and the righteousness of God will shine more brightly. We're going to end here because I want to, what I'm going to get into next is where we go with this. And I'll just give you a preview. You can look ahead in Romans chapter 5 and then we're going to go, what we're going to get into, we're going to get into the Ten Commandments. And we're going to see why the world's scared of them. Ten simple statements that is so dangerous that it's outlawed in public places. Think about that. Ten simple statements, so dangerous that many of our courts have now said, you can't have that in a public place. Wow. Must be something powerful in there. And we're going to begin to look at that next week. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God and the truth. We pray, Father, for the, the word that we've heard to begin to penetrate our hearts. And Lord, as we go throughout this week and our, 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 our commerce out into the world and into the world in which you've placed us, begin to open our eyes to see these truths around us. Help us to recognize, Father, where, where our people and maybe even ourselves are worshiping and focused on the creation with no honor, no awareness of the Creator. And Father, help us to understand that it's for that that the wrath of God will come. The world's chosen to serve and worship something it's made instead of worshiping and serving the one who made us. And prepare our hearts, Father, to receive the depth and the truth of your righteousness 
into our understanding and into our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen.